Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 75, produced 7 December 2020. Cruden Bay is a tiny seaside village on the far northeast coast of Scotland in Aberdeenshire. It is said to be the site of a battle where the Scots defeated the Danes in 1012. It's where a Norwegian aviator made the first solo flight across the North Sea. And as we learned earlier, it's where Bram Stoker wrote his gothic horror classic, Dracula. I'm Glenn Moyer, and in a moment, we'll meet Dacre Stoker, the great-grand-nephew of Bram Stoker, to hear his unique insights into his famous ancestor, including how Bram's many summers spent at Cruden Bay influenced the writing of Dracula. The Scottish Origins of Dracula, part two, is coming up here under the Tartan Sky. Are you .scot yet? .scot is the domain for the worldwide community of Scots. It became available to the public in late 2014 and is used by the Scottish Government and Parliament, the National Health Service in Scotland and thousands of other organisations and individuals around the globe. .scot doesn't mind where you live or what kind of Scottish connection you have. If you're Scottish by birth, heritage or affinity, or an association that practices and promotes Scottish arts and culture, or a business with some kind of Scottish connection, then .scot is for you. Best of all, it's easy to sign up to. Simply visit domains.scot, choose your domain name, and you're off and running. And, by the way, if you're just looking for a wee blather, our email service will help you do that too. .scot. Be part of it. Picturesque Cruden Bay is just like many other seaside villages dotting the Scottish coastline. Originally named Port Errol, it was first established as a fishing village, though the long, unspoilt, curving beach proved an early attraction for tourists. Today, Cruden Bay boasts two hotels, including the Kilmarnock Arms, where Bram Stoker stayed in 1893 and 94, a variety of B&Bs, a chemist, that's a drugstore to us Americans, a newsagent, a post office, craft shop, public house, a general store, and a few other varied shops. It's a mere half-hour drive from the city of Aberdeen. The beach and golf course, established in 1894, continues to draw tourists looking for a seaside getaway, as does the legend of Dracula author Bram Stoker and his association with the village and the nearby Slane's Castle. In part one of this podcast, we visited with Cruden Bay resident and author Mike Shepard. His new book, When Brave Men Shudder, was the result of painstaking research that not only confirmed Stoker's time spent in Cruden Bay, but revealed major new details, including friendships formed with local residents. His research was so extraordinary, it drew the attention of Stoker's great-grandnephew, Dacre Stoker, himself an author and a Bram Stoker scholar and lecturer. If you've not yet listened to that episode, The Scottish Origins of Dracula, Part 1, well, I'd recommend you backtrack and do so before proceeding with this one. Like his famous relative, Dacre Stoker had a full career before becoming a writer and lecturer. He was an Olympic pentathlete and coach for his native Canada. He was also a teacher. He has written both a prequel to Dracula, titled Dracul, with J.D. Barker, and a sequel titled Dracula the Undead with co-author Ian Holt. With Mike Shepard of Cruden Bay, he's now at work on a book about Slane's Castle, a Cruden Bay ruin that played an important role in the writing of Dracula. More about that later. Dacre travels extensively and lectures about his great-granduncle, so having an opportunity to sit and have a chat was quite a privilege. Dacre has visited Cruden Bay, met with Mike Shepard, and, as you'll hear later, felt a strange connection with the place where Bram Stoker spent 13 summers, well more than a century ago. So while I wanted to know more about his own time spent in Cruden Bay, as well as Bram's, I also wanted to know more about the man Bram Stoker, 
And who better to ask than his great-grandnephew? It's kind of been the focus of my life for the past 15 years is, you know, who was this man? How is he wired? He, he's, you know, my great-granduncle. And I'm, I'm a, a people person. I've been an athletics coach, a teacher, you know, all kinds of jobs involving understanding how to get the best out of people. And this is really what I set out to do is, is find out what kind of a person he was what and therefore that would make it easier to figure out what inspired him, what motivated him, you know, through to write, to write Dracula. So, you, you know, th this comes strangely enough, as Mike may have told you, there's a lot of dots to be connected. He didn't leave an autobiography. Um, he didn't write much about himself. He was quite a humble guy. He did include certain uh, points of view that were personal in a book that he wrote called Personal Reminiscence of Henry Irving. That's the only thing we really get. Um, about Bram Stoker talking about himself, other than this really cool lost journal that I found in one of his great grandson's attic and have published in 2012. So I I come to you and your listeners with probably one of the you know the the purest way to get inside Bram Stoker's mind, which is his own thoughts and writings that that this journal covered for about 11 years. Um, while he was a student at Trinity, while he was beginning as a, a clerk in the legal, a petty sessions legal system. Uh, and then when he just started his job with Henry Irving as a theatrical manager. So, uh, I, you know, I, I'm not going to put down the other biographers. People have written biographies about Bram, but a lot of them were sort of, you know, shooting, uh, shooting in the dark, so to speak, <laughs> about making some, you know, a, a lot of, um, you know, theories based on what they've heard from other from other biographers, which kind of drives me crazy. So anyway, that's the preamble to this. The first seven years of his life was a real struggle. He was very, very sick child. I think it was respiratory allergies and asthma because it's prevalent within the family. He had, you know, another brother that had similar situation. But we really don't know what it was. Um, he had an uncle, actually a couple of uncles that were famous doctors. He had three brothers who were growing up to be famous doctors, my great-grandfather being one of them. So you'd think there would have been some medical science available to cure the guy, which they did after seven years. It was a miraculous recovery. I think he was probably bloodlet by one of those uncles. Mm. I read a treatise about bloodletting written by uh, one of his uncles, and it was pretty horrific in what they, what, what they would have done to him if he was. But nonetheless, I, a lot of what I'm going to tell you is, is pure speculation, but put together by a lot of research. Um, so he was, it was, again, a difficult time. One of seven children wasn't expected to live. Uh, he did say he was unable to stand upright, which caused his, uh, him to develop great sense of imagination because he was isolated in his room for, for you know, on and off for seven years. He was brought outside to a park where he could you know, sit outside, not run around like other children. So he really did develop a deep sense of imagination. And I believe it was a very dark sense of imagination. I believe he was haunted by, by nightmares. I believe he thought um, a, a lot of the worst that he was probably going to die. And from the stories that his mother and nanny were telling him, uh, which we'll, we'll get into later, you know, some of these Irish folklore and, and, and stories were, were very dark in their nature, a lot about spiritualism and, and sort of cautionary tales of the dead coming back and, you know, wreaking havoc on folks. Um, he was also told the story of his mother witnessing premature burial and misdiagnosis and so on uh, when she survived the cholera epidemic in 1832. So to, to start with, Glenn, sort of this, this child's beginning was probably a perfect recipe for a guy that grows up many years <laughs> later to write Dracula. Um, but he did recover, and, and he recovered to become a champion athlete at Trinity College. And that developed his, his great sense of... Um, self-concept, his self-esteem. He became sort of what they call a, um, a, a committee man. In other words, a guy that plays on all the sports, but also is, is determined to make the world around him a better place and joins the right committees. He becomes the head of the Philosophical Society, the head of the Historical Society at Trinity College, which are you know, really prestigious positions for people that are doers and that's what really Bram was. He was, a, he was a doer. He participated, but he also wanted to make sure that the world around him 
was was a better place. And I'll, I'll end this this without going into too much more detail. This question. <laughs> no, that, that's fine. You know, one of, one of the big things in this journal was his sense of he he observed many different things around him, artistic things, um, social issues, political issues, re- religious conflict. He wasn't just a sort of myopic guy that was interested in horror from the get-go. He just looked at a lot of things, but importantly, he copied them down, and he also you know, tried to think of remedies, like his mother did, of ways of making the world a better place for those less fortunate than, than the Stokers were, even though this was... Black 47 when he was born and for the next you know five six years Ireland was a you know really horrible place recovering from potato famines and cholera epidemics so this this was a, a difficult start for a man that brought us an incredible novel later on in his life you said a couple of things there that I want to touch on one talking about the other biographers I remember discussing with Mike Shepard that so many people think of Bram Stoker because of Dracula as being this dark brooding individual and and Mike seemed to think otherwise and you also touched on and told me in some of your notes uh, the fact that his mother and his nanny often shared with him very dark Irish folk uh, stories was he a, a character of Dracula was he a dark and brooding person or or was he a very convivial type guy I know Mike said that the, the residents of Cruden Bay found him to be really quite jovial at times no, absolutely. Mike is right. And, and we've discussed this ourselves. And he's found evidence of sort of newspaper articles that mention that. I, I think Bram was a very complex man, Glenn. And I think, you know, when you sort of, again, I'm looking at people from the educator standpoint, you look at how people are wired, you look at their analytical brain, you look at their creative side. Bram had both of these sides of his brain fully engaged. He was, first of all, as a young boy, him and his sister won awards for art. He was a founding member of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Club. Uh, he was a sportsman. You know, he was he was a jovial life of the party. He told all kinds of great jokes. He did have this wonderful dry Irish wit, and he was a storyteller. And all those things came through loud and clear in his journal and then in references that people made about him uh, around the world when he led the Lyceum Theater to go to places. It was, you know, here's Bram Stoker. He's bigger than life, you know, that sort of thing. And, and a wonderful man. But he also did have this introspective sense of imagination. And he latched onto, I think, what many authors do, and I count myself as one of them now, is your personal experiences. And his were very dark. And he was, it was ingrained in him, this sort of spiritualistic life, this dark side that was very prevalent in these stories, these Irish folklores about fairies and banshees and changelings and pukas. You know, leprechauns back in the day were not the, the little icons on, on the cereal that we know <laughs> of today. And the fairies are not Tinkerbell. These were, you know, scary, cautionary tales of, you know, the spirits coming back to wreak havoc on people that didn't behave well, which was quite similar to Eastern European vampire folklore that Bram connected with later on. So, no, you're right. And I'm glad you brought it up. He was a, a, a wonderful guy and, and, and very jovial and and but when he got down to writing, that dark side of himself, you know, really came through loud and clear. Well, interesting because when he set Dracula, he set it in quite a dark place, being Transylvania. How did that all come about? Was was he familiar with that area? Was it a research type of thing? Um, what do you think led to the setting of Dracula in a place as dark and brooding and and a bit scary, quite honestly, as uh, Transylvania? Well, well, again, we need to put ourselves, you know, turn the clock back, Glenn, to 1890 and, and sort of get a sense of perspective of what that part of the world was like and what people in London knew about um, Transylvania at that time to be able to really delve into this question. It's a very good question. And and part of uh, what I've realized is, is, is a little bit of research and a little bit of sort of common fact that people knew. Budapest. Hungary, the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, um, you know, that was sort of the, the end of the Western world, if you could say, not, you know, not chronologically, but geographically. That's kind of where the civilized world ended for the, for the British. Obviously, there was a lot going on um, in, the, in the Ottoman Empire, but 
in between, there were these countries that were that we now know as Bulgaria and Romania and, and Ukraine that were relatively unknown. And what people did know about them, they sort of thought of the worst. There was this mixture of of cultures, of religions, of superstitions. There was this massive mountain range called the Carpathians that isolated people. And and there were, though, books written um, that Bram had access to. And thank goodness, uh, just a couple of years ago, a fellow by the name of Philip Spedding, who was then working at the London Library, who was a big Dracula fan, and he picked up a copy of the Dracula Notes uh, published by Miller and Bassang. These notes live in the Rosenbach Museum. And he picked up this published book where Bram had listed the names of the books that he used in his research. And Philip knew that Bram was a member of the London Library, and he decided to wander through the aisles and, and uh, stacks of books and look for how many of these books may, may still be here. And funnily enough, he found all 26 of them. Wow. And when he started looking through them, he also found that there was very strange pencil marks in the margins. And that's when I got involved, along with a good friend of mine, Robert 18 Pasang. He asked us to verify these marks. And sure enough, it was very obvious these were Bram Stoker's marks. And we were able to compare them to two books that Bram Stoker's son donated to the London Library after Bram died. So these were books of Bram's that he had in his home, and the exact same marks existed in those books. So when you compare we found apples to apples. <laughs> um, so it's really cool to see. And, and, and at the beginning, I was a little bit embarrassed that, oh, my God, you know, Bram Stoker has defaced, you know, library books. I was just but, about to go there. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Philip said, Dacre, don't worry. This is great news because now we can definitively say that the London Library was, you know, one of the ground zeros for Bram uh -huh. Stoker's research. And, and then to answer your question about these other books, so you see these, these books by Charles Bonner, Andrew Cross, um, Elizabeth Maturelli, these people that went to this part of the world and actually gave very detailed descriptions of religion, politics, what the people wore, how the people acted, what the cities looked like, the train routes, the carriage routes, um, that even some of them had maps in it. This was the treasure trove that I am convinced Bram Stoker was looking for. He had he never went there. I think the closest he ever got was to bury his father in uh, near Naples in Italy. Uh, that's another story, but that's about as close as he got to to Transylvania. But he got there by reading these books and looking at the maps and understanding the superstitions and getting the feel for this incredible country. And the fact that Bram was a painter and a sketcher himself, as well as an author. He sort of got the the atmosphere. He he absorbed this atmosphere from the books and was able to describe the country that he sets his his novel in because of the people that went before him there, and that that was very very helpful. Well, it's interesting to me because in addition to Transylvania, the two other locations that played a role in Dracula are so very very different from Transylvania. And that, of course, is Cruden Bay, which we'll get to in a few minutes, but also Whitby, a small uh, village in England that uh, became a setting for a part of the novel. What was it about uh, Whitby in particular, do you think, that first drew Bram there? And then what is it that you think impressed him so much about the, uh, the town of Whitby that he would use that as a setting in his book? Well, that's, uh, again, somewhat speculation, but we do know that at this stage, um, he started writing his Dracula notes. Um, and, and these are 125 pages that live in the Rosenbach Museum. So what I now begin to tell you is less speculation. Um, although the London Library wasn't speculation, we now know, you know, all those books he used, and we know the, the marks and so on. And I've actually bought copies of books of those same books and read them and now have a really good idea what turned them on to, to Transylvania. Mm -hmm. Whitby is another story. He actually went there for a two-week holiday in August of 1890 when, when, he, when he first started dating his Dracula notes. So he could have been researching and reading before that, but we do know that he started those notes in 1890. 
And we do know that he went by himself for the first week, and then his wife and son joined him for the second week. And we have a pretty good idea that Henry Irving had been there before and recommended it to Bram as saying, hey, this is a wonderful Yorkshire village. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, fairways from, from London, but you can get there by train. And it's a great place to unwind and, and a lovely place, which it was. It was a you know real sort of holiday destination um, for for Londoners to get to. But it also has a really cool gothic vibe or atmosphere to it that I am convinced that when Bram got there and he was already thinking of the novel Dracula and the, the, the sort of scholars believe, and I'm, I'm sort of in this camp, that he had started thinking of the novel uh, was influenced by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu, the fellow Irishman who wrote Carmilla, where the story, that story took place in a province of Austria called Styria. And Bram started writing some things down in his notes and used the name Wampir as his count, which is an Austrian, the Germanic Austrian name for a vampire, and then crossed it out and changed it to Dracula. We do know that in the Whitby Library, um, there was a book by a guy called William Wilkinson, and he explains that Dracula means the devil, and he goes on to some more detail about about Dracula. But it's not just this book, Glenn. Um, there was other books in the library that Bram ended up looking at, and they've got great records there of the books he actually looked at. So we know he wanted details, and Bram was a detailed guy. Uh, he was a clerk in the Petty Sessions legal department and wrote a whole manual about details for all the clerks <laughs> around Ireland. So when it came time to writing himself, he liked all these details, and then he would insert them in different places in the story to make the story feel real. And I believe that was the major attraction to Whitby. He wanted a place for Dracula to arrive into London. He originally was, as we saw from his notes, thinking of Dover. But when he got to Whitby, it somehow, and since I've been there, I know more than somehow, it slapped him in the face that the gothic vibe of the Whitby Abbey, which is this great ruin over the, you know, the, the, top, the high point of the, of the village or the town, right next to a wonderful St. Mary's Church with this wonderful graveyard. Um, and I say wonderful, it really was the, the prettier part of town, because when you get down into the the bottom part of the town that, that was not up on this cliff, this west cliff and the east cliff side of town where the with the people uh, lived in the fancier homes, the shops, the markets were down lower in the town. Of course, when you think of, again, the period, the cobblestone streets, the, the sewage, the smoke from all the fires keep everyone warm. It, that wasn't the most pleasant part of the town. But I, I just think Bram wandering through the town, chatting with the guys in the Coast Guard chatting with the rescue crew, the fishermen. Bram was heavily influenced by the sea and the adventure that went with a, uh, a seafaring town. This is where Captain Cook actually came from. So I am sure just like he did in Cruden Bay, he hung out with uh, the sailors and the Coast Guard men and, and kind of sucked their brains dry of the really good stories. And of course, this is what ended up with Dracula arriving in the 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 uh, Demeter, which is set uh, of a very similar ship, shipwreck of the Dimitri, so he took these real events and wrote them in his notebooks, and we can see them all: the the, the weather patterns, the graveyard, the the captain's funeral. All these things were real events on this wonderful little town. But at nighttime, he turned it into you know the the, the scary town, the Gothic town that Bram needed for his novel. Let's move northward then. We know from Mike's uh, investigations that Cruden Bay in the far northeast of Scotland was very instrumental in Bram's writing of uh, of Dracula. Uh, what led him there? What was he looking for? Why would he end up in the far northeast of Scotland and Cruden Bay? Well, well, again, first of all, we got to put it in perspective. His life when he is not on, on these short holidays, was extremely busy. It was, you know, sometimes 14 hours a day, Lyceum Theater, not just the productions at night, but the entertaining afterwards and all the preparation beforehand, uh, traveling to America eight times, all the logistics he was in charge of. When he finally had a ch chance for a holiday to clear his mind and to get involved in his writing, he really needed a remote location. 
But there was something else, and, and I, I credit Mike Shepard with sort of opening up my mind to this part of it. And it is part of the essence of Bram Stoker. He was a map guy. He loved his maps. He loved the details of that. And somehow he found an ordinance map that, that listed and showed the geological features of Cruden Bay. So he actually set out because of this map. Uh-huh. It wasn't just by chance. So he, there must have been something, Glenn, and, and, and my theory, I'll get to my theory in a moment, that, that attracted him there. You don't just go somewhere, you know, 12 hours by train and get somewhere and start walking seven miles, you know, with a rucksack on your back or whatever it was. You know, you, I don't think you'd be carrying a suitcase. You probably had them sent later from Aberdeen or, or uh, Peterhead, I should say. So there was a mission. There was something he was looking for. And as Mike points out in this, this, this map, I think Bram was very dialed in to what I'll call Mother Earth. And this goes to his sort of understanding and his connection with Walt Whitman's theories about life in general and on pantheism, which was sort of that uh, God is is all of the earth. You know, this this idea of religions, even though Bram was a practicing Protestant, you know, he did, did come from Ireland where there was nonstop conflict between Catholics and Protestants. And I think he had enough of that. Uh, I think he was looking for a greater good in life. And that's why he connected with, with Whitman. And that's how, why he connected with this wonderful town, because in a strange kind of way, Glenn, I felt a similar connection to Cruden Bay, that the ocean came up right up, obviously, to this beach, which was a beautiful beach, two miles long, which connected to the, these little hills with the, with the sea oats to a golf course, and then onto farmer's f- fields. The coastline was rugged, but it was also interesting. It all these nooks and crannies. And then at low tide, it got really interesting because at low tide, Mother Earth exposes its sort of un- under, um, you know, these, these granite rocks and, and these, you know, the dark, the deep, dark underbelly, so to speak, where the ships wrecked on these rocks and where the, as Bram said in one of his stories there, the souls of the dead, the bones are littered. So the stories and the connection under the ocean was just as important as sort of the the wonderful, peaceful nature of it on top. And so Bram needed an uncluttered place where he could walk, where he could get into his his writing mind, where the people wouldn't bother him, where they'd give him enough time. But at the same time, he was a family man. And when his wife and and, and son joined him, he needed to make sure they enjoyed to do things because they weren't writing books like he was himself. <laughs> so they were playing, she was playing golf, Florence was, and, and the son was playing in the, in the water and they made friends. But it was a connection that Bram found and, and it stayed with him for the rest of his life. He, he went there 13 summers and, and he also went there at the very end of his life, which Mike and I have chatted about you know, he was determined to go there in 1911, even though he'd had a stroke. And and I believe it was the philosophical side of Bram. Remember, he was the head of the Philosophical Society in Trinity, that he needed to connect with his belief system that this was, you know, the overarching goodness in the world. This is God's imprint on the world, which was the, the physicality of it. And it, it really is interesting in Dracula when he talks about the upheaval of the volcanoes and the, you know, the, the different gases and the, you know, the, the rocks in Cruden Bay, that he's got a sensitivity to all that. It's not just, oh, it's beautiful and it's cool. It was that he connected with it. And, and I think, as Mike points out, sort of an epiphany that he had while Whitman had died and he's now trying to sort of connect with what Walt Whitman left him. And he found it in Cruden Bay. And thank goodness that he did, because he was at peace there and the people embraced him. And my goodness, he was productive when he got there, because it wasn't just Dracula he wrote. He set two other books there, The Waters of right. History of the Sea. And he wrote others as well, but they didn't all have elements that took part in, in Cruden Bay. 
So I'm sorry I'm rambling, but no, it no. really is an important, a really important part of, of Bram coming to peace with the place that, that he just connected with. Well, and I'm interested to know and to hear you say that you had something of a similar connection because I know you've you've been to Cruden Bay and visited Mike. What were your impressions of Cruden Bay and was it did you find it perhaps easy to sort of slip into Bram's how do I say this into into his it is place yeah. <laughs> the, the place that he identified right i mean did you find you mentioned you felt a, a similar connection but was it in a sense that that you suddenly found yourself uh, could almost transport yourself to being there in bram's time and, and and sensing what he found in that location and why it proved so fruitful for his creativity you, you, you know i think in a way the answer is is yes because i had the benefit of, of reading Mike's, uh, he had sent me the manuscript to Win Brave Shuttered, and I wrote the intro to it. And I got a real sense of that. And that helped me then refocus on some of Bram's other writings before going there. So I went to Cruden Bay with a heightened sense of what this place meant to Bram. And as I got there, it, it almost gave me this feeling that, you know, I'm there with him because it makes sense to me what made sense to him. The sense of peacefulness, but the sense of mystery that you've got this wonderful ocean, but at low tide, it bears itself. And these really interesting inlets, the the mouth of, the, of these rivers, the water's mouth, the water's mouth, the really the viciousness of the, when a storm rolls in and smashes up against these incredible rocks uh, at the base of Slane's castle. So to, to me, there, is, there are ways as you, as you look at things and say, oh, that's beautiful. But when you look at it and you can see that there's, there are stories here, there are souls of dead out on the, you know, not just a, less than a mile offshore, many of them that have been wrecked on these, on these rock reefs the scars and you imagine you know as as i imagine as bram did souls that are not at rest you know that have died tragically that's a, the basis for you know bought souls that aren't at rest and they still come still come around to bother people and so on that there's so much of that at cruden bay but at the same time you know the people the fishermen that's, that's an adventurous and dangerous life that they led themselves. Nowadays, you don't see many much of that around. You see sport, sport fishermen, people you know, do, doing you know, kite flying and, and uh, windsurfing and so on, which is different than the rough life, the dangerous life that people led before. But there's also this sort of this, the superstitions that still exist, the pagan sort of superstitions that still exist exist even though religion is so strong so you i got this feeling of you know not not conflict as much as just there was a lot going on um but at times we did this a, a walk with mike and some of his friends because there was a full moon and it was just a, a, a great feeling of peace at the same time of of a place to clear your mind where these thoughts can can germinate and just go and that's what writers are looking for. And, and I think I think Bram had it, and I certainly got it myself. You mentioned just then Slane's Castle. And uh, that's one of the famous landmarks, of course, at Cruden Bay. And there has been much discussion, I think, uh, over the years that Slane's Castle was, in fact, Dracula's castle. And I found it interesting in talking with Mike that he shared with me uh, your opinion that the actual castle Dracula was, in fact, a, a combination of uh, any number of uh, locations that Bram either had visited or had read about in his various research. And so the, the notion that Slane's castle inspired Castle Dracula maybe is slightly off base, but there seems to be no question that the octagonal room in Slane's castle certainly was the inspiration for the octagonal room in uh, Castle Dracula. Would you agree with that? And and is it your opinion that, that the actual Castle Dracula is a hybrid of many locations? 
Uh, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> How about that? Okay, well then let's move on. <laughs> no, um, it, the the first of all, we you know we talk about the atmosphere of Slane's Castle, and um, I won't do nearly as good a job as uh, Bram Stoker would is describing something. Um, he needed to describe his penultimate castle for Dracula's castle, and and he he did. You know, it wasn't pages of it. He, he needed to condense it as Jonathan Harker's approaching Castle Dracula in, in Transylvania. Um, but he needed to see something. So luckily, in two of these books that I had mentioned in the London Library, one by Charles Bonner and one by Elizabeth Maturelli, there was two sketches of the castle at Tersburg, which is what Bran Castle near Brasov nowadays uh, is, is what it's known as. It's, one of, it's the, the, the most successful tourist a location in Transylvania, um, and it's got a cool history of its own, but it has very little connection to Vlad Dracula, who Bran borrowed that name. So he was a merger. He merged different characteristics to make Vlad the Impaler, his Count Dracula. He merged different things. Um, obviously, he chose a different place because I have now been to the place, uh, 400 miles to the northeast of Brasov, where he set the story uh, in, near the Borgo Pass, but I believe his, his years in writing Dracula and the different viewpoints where he would sit and write and walk on the beach and look up at Slane's castle, that definitely gave an image of this foreboding castle up on top of these rocks. Uh, and he used that not only in Dracula, but some of his other stories that Mike points out. So I, I am convinced that even though it may not have looked exactly the same way on the exterior as he described Brand Castle from the sketches in the books. But the interior, to me, there is no question. And I think it is, and Mike and I were just, we're, we're dying to find an actual record of him being invited inside to meet the Earl of Errol, although common sense says he would have been invited. And we just haven't found an account, a written account of it but I'm sure he was invited in and being invited into something as grand as what Slane's castle looked like in the day. He probably used that same feeling when he was writing Jonathan Harker, a little bit intimidated walking into this incredible place. And as I read his account in chapter two of Harker arriving, I'm sure it's Bram Stoker arriving and maybe the Earl of Errol didn't look quite as foreboding as, as Count Dracula did. But you go in and you go, you know, he walks into this room. It's 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 um, in an interior room, no windows to the outside, lit by a single lamp. And, and I'm not sure if Mike told you this, but it, it's such a cool part of the story, Glenn, that as I said this during one of my lectures that I gave at the Kamonic Arms Hotel, um, and it was, you know, so interesting. Mike tells me that it was lit by a single lamp. And, you know, no windows to the outside. After the lecture, this gentleman stood up and said, yes, it was lit by a single lamp. And I'm Robert Hay, whose family owned the castle. And they, in that day, I still have the single lamp. Oh, my. Mike and I, we just about, you know, our jaws about hit the yeah. floor. And he goes, yes. When, when, the, when our family took everything out, I kept the single lamp. And he actually sent Mike and I a picture of that uh, that lamp hanging from the roof, you know, the ceiling in the octagonal room. Oh my god. So we got to see the room and the lamp as Bram did and then Bram uses that, you know, in 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 Dracula. So it was a tendency of Bram to do this, Glenn. It wasn't just a one-off. That's why I'm so sure he took elements of things that he saw, oh, I'll take a little bit of this just like a painter, you know, he wants to make purple. He puts blue and red together. He wants to make the right Dracula's castle. He takes the interior from Slane. He takes the exterior from Bran. He wants to put it here. He does it here. He changes some of the, the names of people, and he moves it all so he creates just the right atmosphere he wants for his fictional story, but heavily based on fact. And let me tell you something, it confuses the heck out of people these days because they, <laughs> they want to say it's a history book and it was right or it's wrong. It's a fictional book based on factual things that give us this realistic feeling. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. One of the things that really struck me in my, my chat with Mike was the discussion that there was a time when he was writing Dracula that he became 
I think, as, if I remember correctly, his wife actually said they were afraid of him. He became obviously this very dark and brooding person. I keep using those words, but I don't have better. Um, and Mike talks about him walking the beach uh, that you've discussed uh, and almost kind of jokingly said he could imagine uh, Bram walking the beach in the role of uh, Dracula. And he suggested that Mike was saying perhaps what was happening is because of Pram's work in the theater and his familiarity with, with that creative side of the world, that maybe he was adapting a bit of method acting and was, in fact, immersing himself in the character of Dracula that he was creating as he spent those hours alone walking back and forth across the beach. Do you think Mike maybe has hit on something there, that this was a part of Bram's uh, theatrical work that also helped in his creativity? Once again, I, I completely agree. Mike and I have had this discussion, and um, you know, it's 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 knowing the man. He he was, again, not only a philosopher and historian, but he debated and he acted and he lived in the theater. And I am sure that because Henry Irving was very well known for this sort of method acting, that Bram was was a part of that as well, by just by osmosis, by seeing the effectiveness of it. And when Bram, you know, got into his, let's just call it a headspace is what some writers call it, to do the writing, the way for Bram Stoker to do it would be to immerse yourself first into Jonathan Harker. And if you look closely into Jonathan Harker, there is a heck of a lot of Bram Stoker in him. Bram was uh, called to the bar, which means he didn't have to go to law school. They didn't do that in those days. You, you, you have to write an exam, but you have to show uh, the certain bar associations that you're worthy of their consideration. And he was asked to do this, write these exams. And, and he chose, he chose not to, because he was quite happy with his job, at the Lyceum theater. And he did a lot of contract work himself, his own contracts that he wrote for his own books that he then would hand over to the publisher and they would do some edits to it. So there was that side of Bram. There was also that side of Bram um, that, you know, needed to, be the, the the stranger in a strange land, which Bram got some practice out of actually as the inspector of clerks as he traveled all over Ireland in carriages and, and trains. But back to this point, I think that's how Bram got into um, the characters that helped him get the right feel for as he was writing the story. And, and, and for your listeners, again, go look at Dracula. Open up Dracula. If you don't have a copy of it, you know, get it on Gutenberg or something for free. And you'll kind of look at, as Bram describes both Dracula and Harker and some of the other characters, they're not just talking about what they're doing. This is written in the epistolary style. So it is their feelings about things. And to write that effectively, Bram had to get into, again, I use the term headspace. So I think that whole concept of Bram marching down the, the the two miles of Cruden Bay Beach and, and, you know, with his hands behind his back, you know, pacing or with a walking stick, you know, like Dracula would or, or perched like a big bat on, on the sand crag. I'm sure he, he had a hard time getting out of that when he came back to have lunch or, or dinner with his wife and his son, and it scared the bejesus out of them. <laughs> um, another question I'm dying to put to you because uh, Mike didn't really have a good answer, and that is I'm a native Texan. And so I'm intrigued by the fact that one of the characters, one of the principal characters, if you will, in Dracula was a Texan. Do you have any reason why that was? Was there a connection that Bram made with Texas during his travels to the States? Was it the stranger in the strange land kind of thing that you talk about? That just intrigues the heck out of me as to, of all the people, you know, it's kind of like the, the line from uh, Casablanca, of all the, the gin joints in all the world, why does she walk into mine? Well, you know, of all the places Bram could have chosen for that character, for the backstory of that character, why Texas? Well, it, it starts with this. He documented his travels in the U.S., the eight visits, the eight tours of the Lyceum Theater. Bram, Bram was the manager. He's in charge of all the logistics. And it's not, not just him and the actors and actresses. It's, the, it's the, the set guys and train loads of stuff that had to come across the ocean and, and get uploaded, offloaded, excuse me, and onto trains. So I've actually found... Um, a friend of mine, a professor at um, Savannah College Art and Design, 
has has uh, got great ability to Google things, and he found this found this map that that Bram had adopted and wrote wrote on it exactly the train lines, how long it would take to get from A to B. Then I've I've collected the different letterhead of his eight tours to to America and found exact cities and dates where he went. So I know he's been uh, through America all the way all the way across numerous of times. I also know that he was very interested and thought very highly of America. He wrote a an essay where he, which he delivered um, a, a, this paper to the London Institute called A Glimpse of America. And he spoke very highly of the freedoms in this new country. He also uh, became very good friends with the showman Buffalo Bill. Him and Irving had helped Buffalo Bill come over to Scotland and London uh, with his troop of Indians and doing all kinds of theatrics. I am convinced that the, the personality, the character of Quincy Morris is simply Buffalo Bill. Uh-huh. That's, that's our man. Mm. <laughs> yep. Interesting. And that's just one of those things that has been bugging me about Dracula since I, I got into this exploration. I put this question to Mike as well, and I'd love to put it to you. If Bram Stoker had not found Cruden Bay, would Dracula exist and would it be the same book? Um, it's hard to say because... We know he wrote it while he was there. We know he took copious notes prior to getting there. We, we believe he started writing it in 1890, and we believe he didn't get there until 1893. So all of his research, a lot of it was done at Whitby because we, we can tell you know, what he wrote where he was for the most part. We know some of it was done in America. So he was busy, busy man. He'd pick up a book or two from the London Library, which was a lending library. He'd take them with him. He'd take notes, as we know he wrote in the books as well. But the writing of it was was done, from what we understand, in Cruden Bay. And there was a certain amount of um, Cruden Bay, the, the, the imagery of Slane's Castle and the interior Slane's. But there was also, I think... You know, the, the sort of the idea of superstitions and spiritualism that um, I think Bram connected with in Cruden Bay. The, the, the author, Emily Gerard, who was a Scottish lady but was living in Transylvania at the time, and he, he read this book called Land Beyond the Forest, which is in the London Library. So he, he got a lot of his basic information beforehand, but I think it was just the atmosphere of Cruden Bay that allowed him to be free to write. So it's hard to put, you know, make a statement and saying, oh, it would have been a different book. He would have needed somewhere just as as peaceful and quiet that let him get on with it. There were, to, to my mind, there were not that many elements um, that he chose from Cruden Bay other than the atmosphere itself and of course, Slane's Castle, to get the story just right. It was obviously heavily influenced, you know, by chapters, or, or Whitby heavily influenced chapter six, seven, and eight, to the point where he set it there. But he didn't really set much in Dracula other than the interior Slane's there. It was just the perfect place to write and to get away from the hustle and bustle of London, to get away from all the demands of of Henry Irving and, and, and uh, all the other you know, people that needed a bits and pieces of Bram uh, in, in his day job. That being the case, your research has turned up, uh, if I read the notes correctly, two drafts of Dracula. So there may indeed have been what I presume would have been a very, uh, in many ways, different book. What is it that we don't know about the book Dracula? <laughs> I start that, Glenn, with how long have you got? Um, <laughs> I, I actually make a successful living traveling around the world, giving this this talk about the, the mysteries behind the research and writing of Dracula. And uh, how about if I just highlight a few of them? Okay. Um, because, you know, there really is a, a, a book that there's so much not known about. We, it's, it's hard enough trying to figure out about what you, we see on the written page, because it is a very complex book. Um, 
sort of like an, an onion. The more you get into it, the more you peel down the layers, the more you, you, you expose. But for instance, you mentioned the earlier version. In 1901, a friend of mine, Hans de Roos, um, excuse me, in 2015, he discovered, Hans de Roos did, that the 1901 edition that was published in Iceland is a, is a different version of Dracula. And then once that was published, and I wrote the foreword to it called The Powers of Darkness, a fellow in Sweden popped up and said, oh, but we have found out that Iceland didn't get it all. It was first published in Sweden and then sent to Iceland. And some of the chapters must have been lost because it was all serialized in a newspaper. So what we see from that is that the concept is the same. This guy travels to Transylvania. But the first half of the book takes place in the castle. And then when Dracula finally comes over to, to England, he's actually um, in the process of um, sort of pulling in the different politicians and diplomats from different countries sort of in a cult to take over the world. And it was more sexual. It was more violent um, and, and very realistic. And the feeling of, of myself and other scholars is that it's quite possible that this was a, an early draft, but that the translators in the different countries, somebody else had their hand in fleshing out the story a little bit more than Bram Stoker did. So that's one of, one of the mysteries. We really, there's no manuscript ever found. We don't really know the answers to that. One of the other really cool things, and I'll, I'll probably just have time to touch on three of them, is uh, when I went out to Seattle with J.D. Barker, uh, when we were doing our research for Dracul, which is the prequel to Dracula, we got to look at um, the Dracula typescript that the Paul Allen Foundation owns. And that is the one and only manuscript, and because it's typed, it's called a typescript, um, that anyone's ever found about Dracula. And that is the version that we know of today, with the exception that it starts on page 102. So there's obviously 101 pages that at one time were involved in this story. And, and I am convinced that the short story, Dracula's Guest, which is only 17 pages long, but it's the story of a Harker-like character who stops in Munich en route to Transylvania and has a series of misadventures. And without spoiling it for your listeners, part of it has to do with a, a vampiric intervention, let's just say. It, it, it makes total sense to me that this is Jonathan Harker en route to getting his train in uh, Munich onto Budapest and onto the Borgo Pass and so on, that I went through the rest of the typescript and found three specific references to things that happened in Dracula's Guest that Bram crossed out in the typescript. So he was told to either edited out by his editor for length, or he chose to do it himself. But then to be thorough, he had to go through the rest of the typescript and scratch out anything that would not have made sense in the book if you hadn't read Dracula's Guest. Two years after he died, his wife published Dracula's Guest along with some other short stories and her preface to it saying, this was a story excised from my husband's uh, most famous work, Dracula excised due to length. So that, to me, um, makes good sense. That's, that's the second really cool thing that we don't know about it. And the final one, Glenn, is that I had found um, that there was an alternate ending to Dracula, that this was another thing scratched out in the, in the typescript. And to, to that end, and I'll, I'll do my best to keep this part brief, it was an, an epiphany for me because I have been following and creating a theory myself that I'm actually working on a documentary film about. And that is Bram Stoker set his story in the northeastern part of the Carpathian Mountains, northeastern part of Transylvania. And Hans de Roos again found in the Dracula notes these map coordinates and names of rivers and villages. And when the map coordinates are actually inverted, it points to a spot in the Kalamani National Park, very near the Borgo Pass. And that location was actually on the side of an old volcano. 
And as that information plays into what I'm about to tell you, the original ending for Dracula, right after Quincy Morris, our Buffalo Bill, <laughs> stabs <laughs> the Count in his chest and Harker slits his throat, the Count crumbles into dust. Right after that, the next paragraph, which was taken out of the typescript, and therefore not many people know about it, a volcano erupts right right then and there. The earth starts to shake this massive volcano. The gypsies take off. Dracula is now gone. And the band of heroes have to run for cover as well. So Bram Stoker was so detail-oriented. If he originally planned to have a volcanic eruption at the site of his castle, he would have put it in a volcanic region. And, and the research that I've done following up with what Drews found, this is actually a volcanic region. And wow. Mount Israel, which is where those coordinates line up, was an old volcano that blew you know, a million years ago and exposed all kinds of sulfur deposits. And those sulfur deposits are what are attributed to the blue flames that have been adapted into superstition that Bram Stoker picked out of the Emily Gerard book, which are the blue flames that Jonathan Harker sees mm. in the carriage ride from the Borgo Pass to the castle leading to buried treasure. Right. So it, it's all this sort of perfect storm of everything coming together with he chose the location because of the volcanic activity. That's how he was going to end the story. And the final piece is that his count was the devil. He wanted a devil-like creature because in those days, the sort of information that they all had, and this comes right back to Bram's fascination with Mother Earth. And remember, we talked earlier in your show about the geological uh, formations of the granite in Cruden Bay, right. where he was he had just as much information of volcanic activity and seismic activity that leads to the portals to hell where the devil resides. So it's all full circle. And Bram, you know, created this out of the details he found in all these books and merged them into one place. Wow. Wow. We could continue for hours. This is a brilliant discussion. But I do have limited time. But I'm curious about Dacre Stoker. Like Bram, you did not, as I understand it, set out to be a writer. You've had uh, another career. And yet your research into Bram has led you into a very successful writing career. You've now written both the prequel and the, or actually, I guess you did it backwards. You wrote the sequel to Dracula and then followed that up with the prequel, if if I'm correct. What about your research? What was it about your research that had you put pen to paper and suddenly become a writer? Because that isn't something you set out to do. And it was the same as I understand it with Bram. So it's almost, as you say, full circle. Here you are, his great grandnephew, researching his life and then almost, in a sense, adapting a part of his life and indeed going on and writing works based off of his most famous work. Yeah, it's... Um... It's interesting when, when you say it that way, and, and, I, and I have thought about it a little bit. You know, um, I had a very successful sporting career myself, having qualified for the 1980 Olympics in modern pentathlon. Bram was a big sports star himself. You know, the, the, the life of athletics and traveling around the world and, and, and meeting many different people in the 12 years I did that, and as a coach at the Olympics in 88, you, you get a, a really great understanding of, of the world from different perspectives. And you also build self-confidence like Bram did and, and, and as I did. But when I started getting into, you know, I, I wound down the, the, the coaching side and I decided to hang up teaching after 20, 20 some odd years. I decided, I sort of looked at Bram's life and I figured, you know, there's something missing here. First of all, my family doesn't know as much as they should about him. And I felt that that's something that I, I needed to do is just, you know, that, that's, that eased me into this. It's just digging into... Bram's youngest brother, my great grandfather, and Bram himself, and some of the other brothers and sisters. What did they do? And I just started collecting the family tree. My wife was interested, and we started making a website called BramStokerEstate.com to to open up the eyes of the world to different researchers and different family members about who our family was, and try to set some of the facts straight because some of the biographers didn't get everything right, and that that drove us crazy. And then I realized, Glenn, that to get the better message 
in something that I do quite well, which is give these these PowerPoint lectures where I got Bram's notes, I got pictures of places where I've been to make all these connections. So I give these lectures all over the place. But I also realized that to get to a broader audience, you need to tell the stories and that novels sell much better than works of, of nonfiction. And so I thought it would be a great way, uh, especially with this prequel that's really Bram's story, Dracul with J.D. Barker. It's Bram's story of him growing up. And most of it, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say about 65, 70% of that story is, is real. Um, what happened in Bram's life and how he then could have written Dracula. I just feel that's a, a way to, to um, you know, spread the word more effectively. And, and I realize my limitations. I have, have not been schooled as an author, so I write as well as I can. I'm a decent storyteller, and I combine, I collaborate with people that, that do write better than I can to, to sort of help, help attract a good publisher with a bigger name than myself, and, <laughs> and we get the, the book out and we get the word out. And, it, and it's, it's been very successful. I mean, it's, it's uh, given me a lot of opportunities. One of the neat things to just give, give to your listeners is that Dracul, um, that the film rights have been purchased by Paramount, or at least the option has, and they've renewed the option. And there looks like they're going ahead, finding a, a screenwriter to adapt the story. And, you know, that, that'll, you know, sort of do something that Bram didn't do, unfortunately, which, which was get one of his works himself uh, out onto the silver screen, so to speak. His, his books were adapted later on. Dracula was to the stage after he died and then onto the screen. Compliments of, of Hammer and Universal and Bela Lugosi and, and others. So it, it, it has been you know, very fulfilling, and I feel it's part of my mission. Uh, I'm in the position to do it, and so why not? And if we're going to do something, why not do it well? Much like my athletic career, I jumped full, you know, all into it. And with the help of, of my wife and my son, who's a, who's a good editor, we want to you know, represent the family as best as we can. And I think Bram would have been very proud about that. Well, you stole the next question, which was, what would Bram think about your doing that? But And and you opened up an interesting possibility because we could do an entire discussion, and I, I suspect perhaps in some of your lectures you do, about the films of Dracula, the interpretations, because they're uh, across the board too, um, which is a whole other subject. I, I guess let me wrap things up with, with this final question. In your opinion, what's made Dracula the international bestseller that it has become? And would Bram be surprised by the success of his work? Um, yeah, let me touch on the one I stole from you first, though, when, about Bram approving this. <laughs> okay. And I, I, get it, I get it asked a lot. You know, people say, oh, you're just riding on his coattails. You know, you're just trying to. Sure. And, and I think, though, Glenn, as a theater manager, Bram Stoker would have looked at this and saying 123 years after I've published Dracula, it has become, you know, this international success, never out of print, adapted on stage, on the film, on the TV, every possible visual media you can imagine. You, you know, he would have looked at that like we sort of look at, you know, Cats or Les Miserables on, on stage all over the world for, you know, not 123 years. Dracula has had one heck of a run, and I think as <laughs> as a for, as a theater manager, Bram would have been very proud. Yeah, the lights but have never dimmed. Was, exactly, and he also was well known for adapting his stories. You know, they Irving and Stoker would get different stage plays and adapt them for the strengths of their different actors and actresses, and adapt them to to their different audiences, and that sort of bleeds into the question of many people years later have taken Bram's idea and done the same thing. They've adapted his basic story and morphed it and moved it around and changed characters and locations and, you know, that sort of thing. So it still becomes relevant. And the story itself, when you, when you actually read it, because the Dracula character is, elusive and he only appears in about 30% of the pages of the novel that he is so mysterious that he gives you lots of opportunities to work with him in ways that he has not already been exploited. Now that that's 
to me, one of the main reasons why it's it, it lives on and on and on because it wasn't a you know an easy story presented to you in a form that once you've read it, you get it. Now, Dracula is so analyzed by students, you know, masters and doctors, uh, theses are written about it. It's so complex that it the answers are still being looked for. And, and, and we, we don't find those answers easily. Bram didn't tell us the answers. He only gave one interview that anybody's ever found by a Jane Stoddard in the British Weekly newspaper about three months after it came out, which gave us a tiny hint of what Bram was getting at. So the fact that he didn't write an autobiography, he wasn't extensively interviewed about it, it's up to interpretation nowadays by folks like myself and many others. And so that's why it doesn't end because we don't have any definitive word about it. So we just have to keep speculating the best we can. My thanks to my guest, Dacre Stoker, great grandnephew of Dracula author, Bram Stoker. I hope you've enjoyed as much as I have listening to his unique insights into the life and writing of his famous relative. Be sure to check out the links in our show notes for more on Dracula, Dacre's own writings, and Mike Shepard's book, When Brave Men Shuddered, which was featured in part one. You'll find those links on our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. In the coming weeks, we've got some exciting episodes for you, including one with Scott's author and publisher, Matthew Fitt, the co-founder of Itchy Coo Publishing. We'll meet with Anna White, founder of Scotland Shop, and we'll learn about some of Scotland's famous ponies. No, not the ones from Shetland, but the Evishke ponies. If you enjoy the content that I bring to you on this podcast, please feel free to leave a review wherever you listen. That's very helpful. And know that you can support the podcast if you care by just buying me a coffee or a cup of tea. Just visit our website and click on the Thistle Pink support button that's at the top of the podcast episodes page. Until next time, I'm Glenn Moyer. Tapalev, I guess Alpha Cabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartan sky. That's the underscore symbol tartan sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>